All authoritarians need to change the public's view of violence. It has to be seen as morally righteous, necessary, and even patriotic. That's Ruth Ben-Ghiat. I'm Margaret Sullivan, and this is American Crisis, a podcast that looks at the question of whether journalism can help to save democracy through the lens of two hinge events in American history, the Watergate scandal and January 6th, 2021. By the way, all our episodes live over at margaretsullivan.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can also support the show there or sign up for free, so each episode of American Crisis lands right in your email. That's margaretsullivan.substack.com. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who is a leading expert on how authoritarian or would-be authoritarian leaders come into power and maintain their power. She is the author of Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present, and she is someone who has really educated the press and the public on what's happening throughout the world, and particularly in America, with our democracy being on the brink. And I'm just so pleased that she's able to join us today. Welcome to American Crisis, Ruth. I'm very thrilled to have you here because there are some things I've been dying to talk to you about. As you know, this podcast looks at the question of whether journalism can save democracy. And it looks at that question through the lens of Watergate and January 6th. And of course, there are many things about your work that fit into this. I'm especially interested in talking to you about the role of propaganda in creeping authoritarianism, and we'll get to that soon. But I actually would was hoping you could just tell me how you got interested in this subject, since I know that you, I believe you did your thesis about this, about Mussolini. Is that right? Yeah. And I should say up front, Ruth has written a great book called Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present. And I think we all know one of the people she had in mind when she said to the present, although it's become a little broader now. So yeah, take us through how you got into interested in this subject. Yes, thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here speaking with you. So I grew up in California, Southern California, and I came to be interested in dictatorship in an improbable way where the town I grew up in, Pacific Palisades, it had been a refuge place for a lot of anti-Nazis, like famous ones, like Thomas Mann, the writer, composer Arnold Schoenberg. So I grew up uh, hearing about these people, kind of their ghosts were everywhere. Some, Some of their children and grandchildren were around me. And so I got interested to think, I was thinking about what does it mean to have to leave your home because a horrible dictator comes? And the whole notion of exile and exile communities. So at UCLA, I did my senior thesis on one of these exiles, Otto Klemperer, uh, the conductor. And it took off from there. And then I decided to specialize in Italy rather than Germany because there wasn't as much done on this. And I thought mm-hmm. I could uh, do you know, more original work. And so that I was, I was doing that uh, historically. 
And I was writing for CNN as of 2014 on only historical issues. Then Trump appeared. And I'd been by then studying fascism for decades and everything about him was very familiar. And so I decided to put aside my academic work and start covering his campaign for CNN and doing all the things I now do. Uh, It started from there. That's really fascinating. And I I wonder, you know, what your emotions were when you when you saw Trump come on the scene really in 2015 and then, of course, 2016 and until this present moment. Um, What did that feel like for you, knowing what you know about dictators and authoritarianism? I mean, did it surprise you or did you sort of see it coming? It it surprised me somewhat that it was very also familiar. And immediately I was focusing also on the enablers, the associates. One of my very first pieces in 2015 was about Steve Bannon, um, about his white, I I called it his white nationalism was, you know, a danger. Um, And, and also the, the way that I saw the rapturous crowds and there is ecstasy. And when Trump uh, made them have a loyalty oath early on. And so I recognized him as a demagogue. The, The other thing that I had, there was an intermediary experience that prepared me. And I had lived in Italy uh, when Berlusconi first came into power. And I was a student. And um, he he was the first person to bring uh, fascists into the government. And so I lived through this thing where people who um, used to only talk about fascism in positive terms at home, in private, all of a sudden it was okay to talk about it in public. And there were rallies and people doing salutes. I lived across from a, a German beer hall and there were like Heil Hitlers and Viva il Duce. And so this normalization of, of the far right, I had lived through that. And so I saw that happening in 2016, well before the Charlottesville and the neo-Nazis are so great. And I thought, you know, I've, I've got to start speaking out. Um, so I did pieces that people had no reference point for, and it was hard to get them published, like predicting in January 2016 that Trump was going to have a personality cult. And I talked about Putin and Berlusconi, and people were like, what are you talking about? Uh, and so it's from the start, I've wanted to educate not only the public, but also journalists. And I, d- I don't say that with any condescension. It's that in America, there wasn't much reference point for considering authoritarianism. It was something that just couldn't happen to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was all about foreign examples. And so I was trying to familiarize people with these concepts. And how open did you find journalists, if you can generalize, to what you were trying to educate them about? Was there resistance or was there fascination, acceptance? Quite quite open, um, and and some of it was a work of volume. I, I basically have given about 300 interviews a year. Um, and part of it was getting unfamiliar words and concepts circulating. So, it, of course, it's not just me. There are others who are doing this work as well. But now we talk about authoritarianism all the time. In fascism. T- fascism. And what do those mean? Fascism is famously fuzzy, but and there's much more of a of a notion among journalists and TV hosts and all this about that you can talk about this now. 
and that the GOP can be considered an autocratic party. Um, and so I did find there, some were not open um, and they were very slow to the game. More of the New York Times is more of a cautious paper uh, in, in some areas of its, its editorial and uh, its op-ed sections can be cautious about these things. Other, other journalists, especially if they covered despots abroad, so it also comes down to individuals. We all know that there's individual reporters and writers and editors, and then there's the paper. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's, that is a fascinating answer mm-hmm. to me. And I agree that the Times is sometimes, I mean, you say cautious, and I guess I'd go a step further and say slow to, slow. to change language. I mean, it took the Times a long time to use the word lie yes. about Trump obvious lies. And the thinking there was, well, we can't know what's in his head because a lie has to be intentional. But then when the lie is repeated and fact-checked and, you know, corrected and it continues on, then you, I think it's pretty fair to call it a lie. Mm-hmm. The same with CNN and having written uh, hundreds of pieces from them for them uh, from the very start, I went through this with CNN too. There was caution. And also, these are very litigious people. Trump is famously litigious. And so that you have to factor that in. It's not an excuse, but you have to factor that in. They, and, and it's led to more layers of fact-checking, legal standards. All of that had to be beefed up because like all autocrats, the second Trump came on the scene, he began to poison the American public against journalists because those are the ones who can expose his corruption. Right. He would talk about, uh, he introduced, he didn't didn't invent, but he popularized the term fake news, Mm -hmm. which really hadn't been in the lexicon very much before that. But then it became uh, an accusation and a description and he famously said to Leslie Stahl of, of CBS, you, you know why I'm doing this, don't you? Uh, in other words, why am I disparaging the press? And she said, you know, no, why? And he said, so that when you write a bad story about me, no one believes it. And, you that- know, of course, Trump, the <laughs> master of saying the quiet part out loud, that's a, a great example of that. So I'd like to talk about the role of propaganda in authoritarianism and and in this sort of morphing of democracies into autocratic states. How does does propaganda and how does the media play into that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we sometimes think of propaganda in an overly reductive way where it's getting people to believe things that aren't true, such as the whole anti-vax, anti-science propaganda. But it's way more than that. It's actually trying to change the way people think, um, make them emotionally retrained to have certain associations. The most famous was, you know, uh, Hitler trained uh, and Goebbels, his propaganda minister, trained, you know, Germans to hear uh, the word Jew or see uh, something about Jews and think they were you know, duplicitous, evil, germ-ridden, et cetera. And that's happened all over the world. Um, Right now, uh, Putin, who has a formidable uh, propaganda machine, the Kremlin, 
is doing that with Ukrainians are Nazis. Um, so, so it's getting people to, to think about the world differently and conspiracy theories factor in because a good propagandist, uh, propagandist usually uses conspiracy theories at some point, um, authoritarians do, and they give a seamless explanation of the world. And what you want to do is you want to, it's almost like uh, putting grooves down on a road. These are the narratives that propaganda feeds. And if it's well done, as each new thing happens, the person, the, the target, has an explanatory frame for this. So for example, the deep state, which Trump inherited from the far right, the Republicans, but he's made it his own. And so the press can be the deep state, the FBI, the DOJ. And so with each new impeachment, indictment, all, all these things, the public was already primed years ago to think of these institutions as corrupt and him as a victim. So it's these associations as well as factual things like, and, and, and today it's especially challenging with deep fakes and uh, you know, getting people, having people, believing that people say things they didn't. Um, but it's really changing a worldview. And the most tragic part of this is that all authoritarians need to change the public's view of violence. Violence has to, and threat and harassment, all of these things have to be seen as not reprehensible. Like I would never do that to my neighbor um, uh, or stand by while a whole cat category of people gets persecuted. It has to be seen uh, as morally righteous, necessary, and even patriotic. So one of the biggest propaganda successes we will look back in history is by Trump with you know the denial of the loss of the election, but especially January 6th, which has become a patriotic act so that uh, political prisoners, the, the, the thugs who were bashing the Capitol Police who are in jail are, quote, political prisoners. Um, this is a triumph of propaganda. Wow, that is, that is fascinating. How does repetition work. I mean, my understanding is that repetition is a really important mm -hmm. sort of ingredient in successful propaganda. What is that the case and and how does that how does that play out? Yeah, this was so the way I structured my book Strongman, I I I wanted to look at the tools of rule, propaganda being one of them. And each chapter, so I have propaganda corruption, machismo, violence. Each chapter goes over 100 years. So you can see what stays the same and what has changed today, for example, with social media, right? And that was a very interesting exercise uh, for me as, as the writer too. So propaganda has always uh, depended on repetition, but what you really need is to have uh, small variations uh, targeted to different constituencies in that repeated slogan or that repeated lie and the Nazis called this synchronization uh, or coordination so that school books, uh, sports, you know, sports uh, camps, um, the, the daily newspaper, high and low uh, versions of that, they all got the same lie with slightly different language. And today with social media, that is hugely accelerated, uh, the capacity for repetition with tiny variations. And the other thing that's 
so devastating for uh, truth in our age is that in, in classic fascist years, you were a consumer of propaganda. You went to the cafe and you had the newspaper there or, you know, you, you read it. Maybe you passed it to your neighbor. But now with social media, you're invited to not just consume the lie, you also are sharing it with a meme or with your own take on it. You're retweeting. Um, and so in that way, you become a producer and you put your own small uh, take on that. And so it seems fresh. And this is why, uh, as well as you know, institutions like troll farms that we have today, bots, all of these things that soup up these narratives. But this is why propaganda can spread so quickly and radicalization of people can occur because they feel they are part of the uh, creative process by putting that meme on. And, and the reach of these lies is much greater. Hmm. So one of the things that I'm looking at on the podcast with everyone, but I'm especially interested in looking at it with you because of what you just said, is how the media and the sort of culture has changed in the 50 years or so from Watergate to January 6th. So your perspective, which looks over that hundred years, certainly takes that in. So what you mentioned social media, is that is that the main change that's happened? And that has, I think you would agree, you know, exacerbated the problem or, or are there other things in the world of communication and media that are adding to this? So just a short break here to remind you that if you'd like to hear all of the American Crisis episodes and the rest of the experience, including written posts and discussion threads and bonus episodes, you can sign up at margaretsullivan.substack.com. I think the main is social media, also the capacity of states and autocrats to survey, to target you with data, with algorithms, to make you want to see that content that wasn't really there before. It is a double-edged sword because dissidents are able to use social media until it's shut down very effectively to get sympathizers and an audience globally outside of their you know, beleaguered country for what they're doing. So social media can also help. But one of the fascinating things is the continuities over 100 years and the demagoguery, the personality cult. Because what, what the demagogue says is it's not just I alone can fix it, or Mussolini said uh, the slogan was Mussolini is always right. They're the savior, they're the defender, they are infallible, but they're also the victim. Mm-hmm. And these... Uh, okay, they, they connect to deep psychological processes that lead people into these communities and keep them engaged in the propaganda to keep on with the theme, keep them engaged with the official journalism. These have not changed in 100 years. And so the victimhood cult, which is highly effective, because not a, it, it's not only that people look up to the leader as their defender, but they feel protective of him because he's vulnerable. So the victimhood runs in two directions, in other words. It's it's both the mm-hmm. the despot or the would-be autocrat is a victim, and he plays upon the victimhood 
of those who follow him. Is that right? Yes. And when it goes to another level, which Trump is highly skilled, what we're hearing now is because at some point, especially if the leader is very beleaguered, he's not not president anymore, but he is for many, he's still their cult leader. It's not enough for him to be the victim alone because people might start to say, oh, this guy has so much baggage. That's enough of him. What he's doing now is he says, I'm just standing in the way. They want you. You're the victims. And I'm going to defend you. So he's, he's, very, he's very brilliant. And he, so the way he's set this up. And so now people are led to believe that they have an existential threat that they must face. And this goes back to my point about how do you get people to be okay with violence? You have to let them not only, you have to get them not only to think violence is morally justifiable and needed, necessary, but they have to feel that they are existentially threatened. And that's the purpose of great replacement theory, which is not just in the States, it's a global thing, as well as what Trump is now doing. I'm the, you know, I'm standing in the way. They're trying to get to you. I am your last hope. I think based on reading you regularly, you don't think that the problem in the United States is only about Trump. You do think that Trump is particularly skilled at the things that we're talking about, but I think you now see it in Ron DeSantis and in others. Can you, would you talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, one of the most extraordinary things that Trump has done is versus Mussolini or Berlusconi, who created their own parties. So sure, they're going to be the big cult leader they created. He took this, Trump took this storied party. He'd been around forever. Plus, we only have two parties. <laughs> and so it's a giant party. And in four years, he made it his personal tool. And he radicalized it. And of course, January 6th was the big test. They had already been made complicit overturning the election, all the things that happened uh, and many things during before he lost the election. And once you make them complicit, people like Jim Jordan and all the other people who are his lackeys, they feel they have to save him because they need to save themselves. Mm. And so there are, there's this concept I have in my book called the authoritarian bargain. And this happens early on when they first partner together. And it happens with the leader makes the leader to be, makes a deal with religious elites, financial elites, political elites. I will, as long as you're loyal to me, there'll be lots of riches and opportunities for you. And it's a loyalty pact. So it starts off on a different basis than normal politicians, whatever normal means in this context. And once they sign on, it's truly, this is a, something repeats. They stick with him no matter what happens. And, and the pact only starts to fray if something like in Putin's uh, case, where his war is a disaster in some way. And so that's why he's having to kill so many elites. He's killed like dozens of elites uh, or they, quote, have died in suspicious circumstances in the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so the GOP is, people are always asking me, you know, how come they're still sticking with him? But these are authoritarian dynamics and they're very powerful and they're tested by history and it's our turn to be living them. It's like we have a laboratory in real time. And this is very challenging for the press to cover 
So one of the things I've tried to do with all my writings and, and TV interviews is also familiarize the press with the dynamics of cults and enablers and followers so that um, they can better understand what's going on. Mm. So how, how do legitimate journalists uh, and, and well-intentioned journalists, public-spirited ones, how, how should they cover all of this? How is it possible to, you know, do the right thing for democracy under these circumstances? Well, I think uh, in many cases the, it, the, the right thing has been done. One way, when you have somebody like a Trump who is unique in some ways, but not unique in authoritarian panorama, you have to uncover the corruption. And so the Times, the Post, other, uh, the Guardian, they've done superb investigations um, of, of per his personal corruption, but also things like, it's very important that um, we learned, I don't remember which big outlet it was, maybe several, that uh, Trump's uh, defense, election defense fund was actually, he was siphoning it off to pay his debts, and this has continued. So this kind of corrupt mechanism which reveals that the campaign as a whole is not what it seems to be. That's very, very important to do that kind of work. But not everybody is, is, is an investigative journalist. There's also been failures. For example, when Marjorie Taylor Greene is brought on a major news show, it would have been very important to ask her why very shortly before that news show, she said that it, had she been uh, in charge of de- January 6th, it would have succeeded and there would have been a lot more guns to get them on the things where, where democracy is most threatened, where they're advocating violence. Um, I would like to see every time a Republican is uh, interviewed, why have you no remorse for January 6th? Mm-hmm. You have to ask these questions. Mm-hmm. And it's been, a, it's been a difficult and sometimes painful learning process. And also... It's, you know, it's difficult to criticize the press because they've also, one one needs to for civic reasons and democracy protection, but they're also living with a number of threats. They're under duress. And sometimes what happens is there's an internalization of, of the criticisms of the right and you get too cautious. This is partly what happened at CNN with Chris Licht. Mm-hmm. You, they internalize the right wing because we've been under years of psychological warfare. That's the Bannon, um, flood the zone with you know what, is also mm-hmm. a volume of aggression. And that takes a toll. I think it took a toll on the DOJ as it operates. I think it took a toll on CNN and other outlets. Um, and they move defensively to the center or to the right. And that's that's uh, that, that's problematic. It, of course, it's never enough to move mm-hmm. to the right. It's not as if that's ever going to satisfy anyone. No. Right. So let's zoom out a little bit. Um, how concerned are you about American democracy right now? Um, I'm I'm very concerned. Um, I'm, I have a I have a, I have two minds. I'm very concerned because there are these statistics, which are very alarming, that 
threats to members of Congress are up like 400% in the last years. Mm. Um, There's huge amounts of political violence. I think that the, there's a whole playbook of uh, causing, um, they did it in Chile in 1973 before the coup. The, The goal is to make through not tending to gun violence, through not correcting the causes of gun violence, uh, trying to crash the economy, which the Kevin McCarthy and company were trying to do with the debt ceiling. You, there's a playbook where you try and demonstrate that democracy is incompetent and it has failed. And what you're left with is crime, anarchy, um, and no way to control it. And so you create uh, an appetite for a strong man. And many things that are going on uh, are in that direction. So in that sense, I'm very worried. Also, when you have someone like Trump who comes in uh, and gets in the DNA of politics, the, the impact is far-reaching for decades, can be. And it spawns imitators, and that is Ron DeSantis, who... Um, has learned that he should be as bloodthirsty, macho, and um, anti-democratic as possible. So that, in a sense, Trump's no longer necessary because the whole system, the Jim Jordans, the Kevin McCarthy's, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, all these extremists have taken root. So you have somebody like George Santos, a fraudster who thinks that that's a good thing. He has notoriety, he said the other day. So the system changes kind of, not permanently, but deeply. Now, the good part is this has always sparked a backlash. And I think so it is in our country where we're seeing uh, the equivalent of what we are living through, which I wish was covered by the press more, we are in the midst of a global renaissance of nonviolent protest. There are so many protests going on in countries, either that they're the largest they ever had, mm-hmm. like in Israel, or they're the largest they had in decades, like Iran, uh, Chile. And in our country, the Women's March was the largest in history. And then again, Black Lives Matter was mm-hmm. the largest. Mm-hmm. And now, there's this huge awakening at the local level where these, like in Tennessee and in Florida, you have these new alliances between grassroots organizers and state lawmakers. Mm-hmm. So that is very hopeful. It sounds like this could be a new book. It will be. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm glad yes. to hear that. I will be very interested to read it. Um, so I always like to ask people what their call to action is, both for journalists and for citizens. So knowing what you know and what the dangers are, and I think your views are so wonderfully balanced at seeing some of the positive things and clearly seeing the dangers. You know, what would you like to see citizens or sometimes known as news consumers do? And and what would you like to see journalists do? And I know that's a huge subject, but just maybe hit a high point or two with each? I think for journalists, um, to not be intimidated and whatever one wants to make of that term, to ask the hard questions, as in the example I gave with Marjorie Taylor Greene, to, I have a, 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 
a concept I've developed uh, to deal with propaganda called expose the device. When someone is pushing a lie, you don't refute it tit for tat. You rise above and you show what is gained in the information, disinformation ecosystem by telling that lie. Expose the device. The device. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and so it's very important to always keep the big picture in mind. And why did you say that to Marjorie Taylor Greene? Uh, do you, you know, and, and call them on the, call them on the violence. That's very important because political violence is the big thing on the horizon everyone's worried about. So don't be afraid to ask the very difficult questions. Yeah, you might lose access for a while with that one person, but these are also all opportunists, all transactional beings, all media hounds. Uh, they'll be back. They'll be back. For people uh, who are not journalists, I think it's really important to not give up hope uh, because authoritarians like Trump uh, and the GOP who are, can often be nihilist, they're, cyn they're cynical, um, they're destructive, they want you to feel like resistance is futile, that you're going to get, uh, now they've changed the laws about protests, you'll get arrested, you'll get mowed down by a car and nothing will happen to the driver, um, that you live in fear. And everyone has a different tolerance for fear and different, depending on who you are, you're targeted differently. But it's very important not to give up hope that change can occur because of our daily actions. Um, and that's what sends people into the streets in places like Iran and Hong Kong. And we still have the, we still have freedoms and we've got to exercise them. That's a great answer on both. And uh, I hope people will, will hear it and, and take heed. So this has been great. Uh, I do want to recommend Ruth's book, Strong Men, From Mussolini to the Present and Look forward to the next one. And uh, thank you very, very much for, for coming on American Crisis. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. Well, I hope you agree that was a really interesting conversation with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, the author of Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present. And one of the things that I found the most compelling about it was the way she talked about how Donald Trump has not just had these authoritarian impulses himself, and become something of a cult leader, but how he has created a bunch of imitators so that even if he goes away, there are the Ron DeSantis's and, and Marjorie Taylor Greens and Jim Jordans of the world to carry on. And that that, she says, in terms of the worldwide trend is quite unusual. She's also very smart and obviously knows a lot about the role of propaganda as a tool of creeping authoritarianism. And I loved her advice both to journalists and to citizens, but particularly to citizens telling them and us not to lose hope, that it's really important to not just sort of sit back and decide there's nothing to be done, but rather to be hopeful, be optimistic, and to be willing to take action. And she does see that, and she's hopeful about that. I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of American Crisis when I talk with Jelani Cobb. Jelani Cobb is the relatively new dean of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism in New York City, and he is a well-respected writer, 
particularly on subjects having to do with race for the New Yorker magazine. So please come along for the ride. In addition to the podcast, you can find the full American Crisis Experience on my Substack, Margaret Sullivan at Substack.com. Production services for American Crisis are provided by Voltage. It's produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Tyler Morissette. The music for this show was composed by Crosstown Traffic. This is American Crisis. I'm Margaret Sullivan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>